Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It For was the day. best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening today. For with me in the studio is my faithful producer, Mr. Dan Arnfield. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. Oh, good. I'm glad he's saying hello. He has his own mic set up. That's great. <laughs> All right. Do we have any comments today? Yes, we do. I'm really happy about this. And this is another uh, comment from Lisa from Down Under. And so uh, I've known Lisa for actually for a long time. And so I'm glad that she and her son uh, is listen- are, they're listening in. She says, good morning, Mr. Leap. Thank you so much for reading my comment the other day and for offering to look into the future episodes and books for the younger generation. As my son Nathan and I were listening to you on JBL reading out my email, my son kept jumping for joy as he went on so excited. Like I told you, he loves books. It's just unfortunate that it's so hard to find anything to really inspire them with the current selections in our local libraries. Well, Lisa, you can, if, it's, if it's anything like the United States, you can be thankful that you're not using school libraries <laughs> because uh, he'd be getting books that you would never really want him to have. So, uh, so I, I haven't been into, uh, shame on me, by the way, I haven't been into a public library for a long time. And so I might have to go in and just start searching around to see what they're doing to children. Anyway, I'll be listening out eagerly on JBL, but in the meantime, we are still really enjoying going through my early life of Winston Churchill. Here's a fun fact for you. The small town I lived in as a child for, uh, for about six years was called Churchill, and I only recently found out why it was actually named after Winston Churchill. Now, the picture below of the strange landmark in the center of town that I thought was so ugly makes sense. And so she sent me a picture of her town that she grew up in. And there is this huge, tall thing. And uh, it is kind of ugly. and uh, But it represents a giant cigar. <laughs> and so you can see why they called the little city Churchill. So uh, we haven't talked too much about his cigar days. But uh, um, anyway, uh, we, we'll get into that, that later. He, he did the more of the cigar things. Uh, well, we did talk about that with Cuba. Remember when they first got to Cuba, they, they ate a lot of oranges and smoked a lot of cigars. So, so he got hooked on that in Cuba. But then anyway, she says, uh, you're Aussie fans, Lisa and Nathan. And so I, I thought maybe I could just, instead of uh, calling all the way down under, uh, Lisa, one of the books that we are going to read on the radio, I haven't just scheduled it yet, but we are going to be reading uh, one of Winston Churchill's uh, favorite books. And uh, uh, maybe what I'll do is I'll just send you an email and tell you what that book is. And uh, it, But it's actually, well, it is Treasure Island. And uh, I think Nathan is probably at the age where he would really enjoy and like like uh, Treasure, Treasure Island. So... 
but it's not on the schedule yet. I actually want to do uh, Gone with the Wind uh, first after we get through this book, and um, we'll, we'll see what happens. I know my I have my wife is going to be on the uh, series for Gone with the Wind. It's really a, a ladies' book, but it's about the Civil War. And one of the things we have to understand about Winston Churchill, he loved American history. Remember, he was, you know, half American. And uh, the, the other thing is he loved the, the, uh, the book, Gone with the Wind. He thought that really gave him a picture of what it was like in the South and with the Civil War. So uh, we'll, we'll probably be doing that uh, after this series. And uh, um, we'll see exactly what we're going to be doing now. On our last program, I finished the highlights from Chapter 6. Remember, that was Cuba. And uh, uh, I, I think one of the funniest things in that chapter, just to remember, is, is remember, he, he just, as a young, uh, un, uh, let's see, how would I say that, untutored soldier in actual war, he couldn't wait to get out and hear bullets whistling past his head. But then on page 84, if you just uh, you know, have your book, um, he said, so at any rate, I had been under fire. That was something, nevertheless, I began to take more thoughtful view of our enterprise than I hitherto had done. <laughs> in other words, he was in, he was under fire. Uh, the bullets whizzed over his head, killed a horse, and he realized that bullet passed within one foot of his, of his head. So he could have been dead <laughs> and not the horse. So, so anyway, that is, that's kind of the idea of a lot of young guys. You think, well, I'd really like to do this. I'd like to dive off a cliff and into the ocean and all that until you do it and you realize you could have killed yourself. Uh, so I did that in Puerto Rico, by the way. So <laughs> I dove off a cliff into this flowing stream and then everybody was screaming at me, why did you do that? I said, because I wanted to. And they said, you know, there's a big rock in the middle that if you had hit it on your head, you'd be dead by now. So, uh, so all of us at a young age do kind of stupid stuff. Now, for today's program, I want to turn to Chapter 7. It's titled Hanslow, and uh, it begins uh, with uh, uh, young Winston. He returns to England now after Cuba, so, so the, the chapters all lead one into another. But I want to start reading on, on page 89 now. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Hunslow, and we'll talk about Hampton Court here. But uh, he goes on to say, he says, In the spring of 1896, the 4th Hussars marched to Hounslow and Hampton Court preparatory to sailing for India in the autumn. So, so remember now, his, his adventure into Cuba was not with, the, with his regiment. That was separate. Uh, they got permission to do it. And, uh, but it was separate. It was separate from what the fourth hostiles were really going to be doing. And so, so essentially, uh, when we open this chapter, his training is over as in a regiment. He, his training, uh, as a horse rider or as a, I don't know, maybe the, the right expression to say, but, uh, uh he was in a regiment that, that, uh, they, they, uh, really rode on horses. And uh, remember, he used to say he fell off all the time anyway. So, but he actually overcame that. So he said, uh, at Hunslow, we yielded up our horses to some homecoming regiments so that all cavalry training came to an end. So, so he was a successful hussar. He was going to stay with, with the hussars. 
He says the regiment would remain in the East for 12 or 14 years and officers were given the fullest leave and facilities for arranging their affairs. Before our horses departed, we had a final parade on Hunslow Heath at which Colonel Brabazon, whose command was expiring, took leave of the regiment in brief soldierly speech marked by distinction of phrasing. And so, so we'll talk a little bit about that in just a few minutes. A few minutes. But one of the things I want to say to all of you listening out there, if you've never been to England, and if you've never been to to Hunslow, the Hunslow area of London, uh, and it's also Hampton Court Palace is right there, it is probably one of the most uh, scenic and beautiful parts of London. I have been there. Uh, uh, is it, uh, these, are, these are notes that I took off of Wikipedia just to explain it to you. Hounslow is famous for a number of reasons, including its historic high street, which has been in existence since the medieval period. So, so here we have to remember how old actually England is. And, and here, this one part of this section, Hounslow, is back to the medieval days. He says the area is also known for its excellent transport links, including Heathrow Airport, which is located nearby. And, and I've been in and out of Heathrow Airport, and uh, so we flew over this area. Now, Hampton Court Palace is also in this area, and actually I've had an opportunity to visit Hampton, Hampton Court Palace, and I actually taped some of my earliest JBL programs at Hampton Court. And uh, uh, Sam uh, Livingston was there with me, and we didn't get into any trouble. <laughs> we didn't necessarily have permission, but uh, we actually uh, took shots from a Shakespeare play being performed in Hampton Court in their, in their theater. And the theater was massive. This is in Hampton Court. And so let me just read this again from uh, Wikipedia. It says, Henry VIII's most famous residence, Hampton Court Palace, was devoted to pleasure, celebration, an ostentatious display, and it really is amazing. The gardens there are amazing. Uh, it says, when Henry finished his building program in around 1540, Hampton Court was the most modern, sophisticated, and magnificent palace in England. And so, so you know, it, 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 uh, it rivals, I think, uh, Buckingham Palace. I mean, Buckingham Palace is just huge. Hampton, Cal- Hampton Court is, is beautiful. You know, so so it's really it's it's really very interesting. So so here's where his uh, cavalry training basically ends at, at Hunslow and and the Hampton Court. Now, what you have to understand there is is uh, and he brings this out here on the first page is that that they're essentially what they're doing is they're going to be giving up their horses to a new regiment. These are new new. Students, I guess you could say, new students. So, so uh, uh, anyway, he goes on to say that, um, and, and this is this is really, it's really getting us ready for the next chapter. He, he goes on to say, he said that that his regiment would move into India for the next fourteen years, and so so essentially, what what they're doing with the, these young guys is they're taking away their horses and they're giving them. They're giving them six months leave <laughs> around Hampton Court and around Hunslow. 
And so, so can you imagine that? Now they just got back from Cuba. So, so he says, officers were given the fullest leave and facilities for arranging their affairs. So, so in other words, can you imagine if, if, uh, if, if some of this regiment, they had girlfriends and they said, okay, well, we're going to India for 14 years. So I think that's the kind of affairs he's really talking about. You know, they're getting ready to, to do all that. He goes on to say there, I think I, maybe I read this. It says that the, the regiment performed one final parade on Hunslow Heath. And since Colonel Brabazon's command was expiring, he took leave of the regiment in a briefly soldierly, and excuse me, in a brief soldierly speech marked by distinction and phrasing. <laughs> and so I think you know what that means. I, I think we got to talk about Brabazon's <laughs> lisp. He said, uh, I just said, this is my idea. I said, we should assume that means he probably had to take a twain from Hunslow. <laughs> so he, he could not pronounce his R's very well. So, so anyway, uh, so, so essentially now, Winston is telling us, man, I got six months to kill. <laughs> and so, so, um, he goes on to, to saying that this was probably one of the best six months of his life. He says there in the second paragraph, I now passed the most agreeable six months and the fact that they formed almost the only idle spell I have ever had. And so, so if you really think about Winston Churchill and, uh, if you, if you look at things rationally is Winston Churchill was a go-getter. He was a man of action. And even as, I mean, even as a young guy, he's 21. I mean, he's still only 21 when we're here. And, uh, uh, I, I guess he said, I need a spell. And so he, he really took it. He, he really took command of it. Here's what, though, there's one author that wrote this about, about Winston Churchill I think we need to remember. He says, while the man of action perhaps more accurately describes Churchill in time of battle, demanding action from others and of himself, he was always a restless man, fearful of inaction. In his quieter years, he was always determined to keep himself busy, perhaps to keep the black dog of depression at bay. And so, so we do have to remember that he did suffer from, from a lot of depression. And, uh, but he was also dealt a few tough blows in his life. And of course, we're going to get to those, uh, you know, as we go through these books. But, but here he said, uh, one of the things I think that really, really excited him, he says, I, this is page 89 still. It says, I was able to live at home with my mother and go down to Hounslow Barracks two or three times a week by the Underground Railway. So, so essentially, he had the freedom to go live with his mother and just had to appear at the barracks when he needed to. He says, uh, but, but listen to what they were doing. He says, we played polo at Hurlingham and Rain, Rain, Law. And so these were, these were two, uh, polo fields in that area. He says, the Roehampton grounds had not then come into existence. I now had, Five quite good ponies, and was considered to show promise. So, so the the thing is, is here he's in a regiment. He had to give up his horse, but yet, uh, Winston Churchill owned five ponies, polo ponies. And so, so uh, I know he liked racing, and he liked betting as well. And that's why he was broke most of the time. <laughs> so, so, but Queen Queen Elizabeth, she's now she's uh, she's dead. But uh, she also liked horse racing, and she liked to bet on them. So, so he says, 
this is what I think is a great line. He says, I gave myself over to the amusements of the London season. And so, so he's saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, uh, just sit around and, and, uh, not do anything. And, and he said, I'm going to get out there and I'm, I'm really going to, uh, I'm going to have a really good time. But he also brings out something in this chapter. And I think, I think this chapter is really, really relevant to those of us that are American and those of us, I know there are people listening all around the world. Um, but, but, uh, he, he, he kind of gets a little melancholy as well. And we have to remember now, he's writing this, that this book was published in 1930, so he's much older than 21 by the time he writes this book. But, but the, I think the reason I love this chapter so much is one is I really love England. And, uh, um, I know that, uh, I have, you know, English background. I know that I'm related to the Tudors. Uh, my mother, when we got sick, always gave us tea. <laughs> she gave us hot tea. So, uh, I've never saw, I've never saw my mother drink coffee. She always drank tea. He goes on to say, in those days, English society still existed in its old form. It was a brilliant and powerful body with standards of conduct and methods of enforcing them now altogether forgotten. In a very large degree, everyone knew everyone else and who they were. The few hundred great families who had governed England for so many generations had seen her rise to the pinnacle of her glory were interrelated to an enormous extent by marriage. And so, so when you think about it, and I think back to when I was growing up in the 50s, um, you know, this sounds so much like the society I grew up in. I mean, I remember the, all the parents would play games with us at night in the summertime. Um, if if uh, we were getting in trouble, the neighbors would call my parents and say, I just saw Denny doing this, you know. And so, so we all watched out for each other. Um, he says, everyone met friends and kinsfolk. The leading figures of society were in many cases the leading statesmen in parliament, also the leading sportsmen on the turf. And so, so one of the things we have to realize is the, the British really are into their sports. And of course, so are the Americans. And that's why we're, we're family. That's why we, uh, you know, get along or used to get along so well. Uh, some of that's being destroyed by the present administration. We won't uh, mention any names, but uh, I think everybody knows who I'm talking about. So, so anyway, he's he's just talking about a a, a uh, you know a society that's actually gone. And remember, now he he wrote this as a much older man, and so so we have to look at it in in some ways that. Uh, the same way with America, it's that the old America is gone. Now, I've titled this program, uh, After Cuba, Young Winston Visits the Vanished World. And uh, uh, here's where he begins to talk about that. On page 90 at the top, he, he mentions uh, one, of the, uh, one of the prime ministers that, that actually he, he was prime minister for, for quite a long time. And he's talking about Lord Salisbury. He was prime minister, I think, from 1895 to 1902. And so, so, uh, he's just saying that at that time period, like during the six months, he said, Lord Salisbury, who was prime minister, uh, 
a very famous prime minister and very well liked. He said, Lord Salisbury was accustomed scrupulously to avoid calling a cabinet when there was racing at Newmarket, and the House of Commons made a practice of adjourning for the Derby. So, so everything shut down when it was time for sports. That's what I'm trying to get at. In those days, the glittering parties at Lansdowne House, Devonshire House, or Stafford House comprised all the elements which made a gay and splendid social circle in close relation to the business of Parliament, the hierarchies of the Army and Navy, and the policy of the state. And so he's saying this was just an amazingly beautiful time as well. And we'll, we'll talk about a little bit more as we go on. All right. He goes on to say then, he says now, uh, now, this is, he's, he's looking at now. So remember now, he's looking back. So he's, he's being retrospective here. And uh, he says now, uh, Lansdowne House and Devonshire House have been turned into hotels flats and restaurants. The Stafford House has become the ugliest and stupidest museum in the world in whose faded saloons socialist governments drearily dispense the public hospitality. And so, so you see, this is in the, in the, well, the 1930s. He's looking back on what he had experienced as a young man, and he said, the socialists have gotten rid of it all. And, you know, what is happening in America well, I won't call them socialists. Let's just call them what they are, the communists. And they're destroying, they're, they're destroying a beautiful society that used to be there. I remember uh, everybody would be so excited over the 4th of July. Everybody would be very excited over Labor Day. Uh, everybody would be really excited over Memorial Day. And there was parades and there was picnics and, you know, the neighborhood people would get together. And that's just, that's just not, it's not happening anymore. He goes on to say, but none of those, these shadows had fallen across London in 1896. So, so he's going, now he's going back to his, to uh, his early days. He says, on the contrary, all minds were turning to the Diamond Jubilee in the coming year. And so, so what he's referring to, he's referring to the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria. And she was, uh, she, she, on June 20th, 1897, that was the Jubilee, and they were celebrating the 60th anniversary of her accession. And so, so he said, you know, uh, there was all these things happening, but, but, uh, you know, in, in that day, but if you were really, let's say, in love with the empire, if you really were, were appreciative of what England had done, um, he goes on to say, but none of these shadows had fallen across London in 1896. On the contrary, all minds were turning to the Diamond Jubilee in the coming year. I moved from one delightful company and scene to another and passed the weekends in those beautiful places and palaces which were then linked by their actual owners with the long triumphant history of the United Kingdom. And you can see that Winston Churchill just loves the empire. He loved it. He says, I am glad to have seen it, if only for a few months, this vanished world. And so so it, it's just sad to have him say that, but it's like you know, he could still see this in his mind. He says, the picture which remains in my mind's eye is the Duchess of Devonshire's fancy ball dress in 1897. It, it reproduced the scenes upon which Disraeli dilated in his novels. 
Indeed, it revived one of his most celebrated descriptions for outside in the Greens Park, large crowds of people had gathered in the summer night to watch the arriving and departing of guests, to listen to the music, and perhaps to meditate upon the gulf which in those days separated the rulers and the ruled. And so, so it, 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 uh, it, it's really quite interesting what he was experiencing in the six months. He was really living, you know, in high culture. And, you know, if you're a soldier and you're going to be gone for the next 14 years fighting, you know, that's the best way to get rejuvenated. Now, I do think it's interesting that, that uh, uh, he's talking about that. There's, there's some other things that really come up that are really pretty funny in here. But uh, he goes on the page of Bond 90, and uh, uh, the, bottom, the very bottom of the page it says, When in 1920, M. Paul Cambo brought to an end his long, memorable mission to the court of St. James. He was good enough to come to luncheon at my house. So remember now, he's living with his mother. The talk turned upon the giant events through which we had passed and the distance the world had traveled since the beginning of the century. He said, in 20 years I have been here, said the aged ambassador. I have witnessed an English revolution more profound and searching than the French Revolution itself. The governing class have been almost entirely deprived of political power and to a very large extent of their property and estates, and this has been accomplished almost imperceptibly without the loss of a single life. I suppose this is true. So, so essentially what he said was, you know, the, the, the English empire was being destroyed. It was being taken apart. And that's exactly what's happening to the American empire as well. And we're seeing it happen. And uh, although, you know, with all the uh, Summer of Love riots, there's a lot of people have died, unfortunately. And so, uh, so, so anyway, uh, he, he said he was really sad to, to leave this vanished world. And so it was, uh, you know, essentially... Um, you know, a lost world. It's to me. It's almost like he, he's he's in a time machine. <laughs> you know, he's going back and he's he's looking at things he should have understood. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today's program. Now, on our next program, I'll finish this chapter seven, and I will try to move into chapter eight. And so, anyway, there's a lot to talk about here. Anyway, uh, I just think, to me, I love the British Empire. I love the American Empire. And so, uh, so we can move on. Now, you can buy my early life at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may be also able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And of course, you can also check your local library. So please be like Lisa and write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.